Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast, the podcast where we review two thematically linked movies, one mainstream and one cult. Uh, and discuss them both. I'm super excited. I am also your host, comedian and film critic, Nate Wyckoff. We've been plagued with technical troubles over here on Colton Classic Podcast this morning, so everyone is ripping and raring to go because I've made them wait uh, a long time. Uh, I'm very excited. This is our Street Gangs episode. So we have 1979's The Warriors, uh, and then we have uh, Moist Fury from 2011. And I'm really excited uh, to discuss each of these because they are very, very different, even though they have some thematic relation. Uh, that's my line, and I'm sticking to it. So we've got a great cast lined up on the panel today. We have a full house. We have Greg Johnson. How are you doing, Greg? Well, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be here to talk about the Warriors, but go fuck yourself for Moist Fury. So, I mean, a little bit of both. <laughs> it's pretty on brand. It's pretty on brand. Uh, that cackle you hear in the background is Jeffrey Tucker. How are you doing, Jeff? Nathan, come out to play. We also have Tad Mastriani. Hello, Tad. Nathan, why do you do this to me? I am. I. I. I specifically didn't tell uh, anyone who made Moist Fury in case they had already seen previous films. Uh, I'm a fan. I'm just going to say that right now. We're going to talk about this. Uh, and rounding out the cast is our token female, who I'm very grateful to have, Amanda Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? I'm good. And I'm also one of the very few females who does not have an aversion to the word moist. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not strong uh, strongly liked amongst the male community, I think, either. It's just a... <laughs> just a rough thing i i don't it's eat a fucking chicken. word you weirdos i don't eat chicken as much as i could because moist is a terrible descriptor all right so uh let's talk about this movie uh, the warriors from 1979 it's based on uh, a novel called the warriors by sol Urich, and it's directed by walter hill uh walter hill did the screenplay with david shaber walter hill is a pretty i think a pretty great american writer uh excuse me uh film director um dave shaber has done some stuff as well probably i think the next most well-known film is is maybe uh flight of the intruder from 1991 uh, but he's done a lot of movies walter hill uh directed one of my all-time favorite individuals uh nick nolte in the 48 hours series he also produced uh the aliens films so he's got a lot of, of street cred under his belt 
But The Warriors is the film that follows a group of Coney Island uh, street gang members in sort of a near 70s future. Like it's a near future, but it's a near future as seen through the eyes of the 70s. Um, this gang is trying to make it through a bunch of rival gangs turfs uh, when various sections of the subway are closed to them after they've been accused of murdering uh, Caesar, the gang lord who is trying to unify all of the street gangs to sort of take control of the city from the police. Uh, so we open with this big park scene with thousands of, it looks like thousands of, uh, uh, of gang members from different groups. Caesar's making this big stirring speech, unifying them all. Everyone seems to be uh, in uh, behind him. And then this small gang right up at front, somebody pulls a gun and shoots him. Now, seems like most people don't see who this is, except for one of the warriors. Well, the shooter then shouts out that the warriors guy shot Caesar. And so it starts this big uh, uh, chase, essentially. Uh, and the warriors, they split up, they reconvene, they go through all these trials to try and get through these other territories to get back to Coney Island. Um, spoiler alert it's not a spoiler alert this is a movie from 1979 if you don't if you haven't seen this movie um personally i highly suggest it even if you don't like it and i think most people will but even if you don't it's kind of a cinema classic at this point um and it, it, it there's so many references made in other movies and media uh, as we did in our intro uh warriors come out and play while they're banging uh glass bottles that are stuck on their fingertips like olives like that's a classic line, a classic scene. Uh, and uh, you'll just see so many references to this in pop culture. The We watched the director's cut, except for Mandy who watched the original cut. Anyone who's interested, the director's cut uh, has very few changes. It's 76 seconds longer. Um, they, This is, in my take, essentially what Walter Hill did. And it's interesting because Walter Hill did this little intro to the director's cut um, where he says, like, I don't like director's cuts uh, or special editions. I think they're stupid and you should just judge the movie on its own merit. Um, yet he acquiesced to do this one, um, which is funny because I don't really think that it's particularly different. The biggest difference people will notice is that it uses comic pain cuts. So while the original does have like a comic vibe with some of the transitions and some of these screenshots where they'll have an illustration for a transition that becomes a, a person's you know actual actor and then they'll go on with the scene uh, as sort of a way to go between these different events that are happening the director's cut adds literally a, a, a bordered white line on the swipes so instead of like a star wars barn swipe um it's actually got like a comic panel wipe so um i can see how that maybe he feels if that was his original intent is closer to his vision the other things that he did is he cut out a few seconds here and there from some scenes and transitions and camera um zooms and he changed some zooms where they zoomed into new things or when they didn't zoom at all uh, when they zoomed in the originals they're very minor changes um, obviously the director's cut is much, much crisper than the theatrical cut that's cuts that have been released. Um, the, the panel artworks have been updated fully. Um, it's actually the new transitions and stuff are to me, were actually a little, they weren't homogeneous with the product as a whole, because it's, um, it, they're so crisp and so high def high res that it actually was a little different than the footage. Although the footage is very, very, very beautiful on uh, this this transfer, which I, I don't know if it was from a 4K or not, but it's quite beautiful. Regardless, I think the film itself doesn't change any plot points. It's pretty much the same exact film. Now, 
if you watch this movie, you will be, oh, this is the Odyssey. Um, the Odyssey, uh, of course, the the famous Greek, uh, no, uh, it's, it's, it's an epic, it's an epic poem, uh, follows Odysseus as he tries to make it back sailing around with his crew to his wife. All along the way, he sleeps with a bunch of different people, runs with a bunch of different mythical creatures and so forth. You know, old hat. We've been there. We've done that. Go watch the uh, Ray Harry Husen uh, stop motion features if you want to get that vibe. Uh, but knowing that is cool watching the Warriors because it's not a perfect parallel, but it is very clearly inspired by it. Uh, now, I'm going to stop babbling here and get to what each, pe each person thinks. Uh, Greg, I'm going to start with you. Had you seen this before? And uh, regardless, what was your takeaway watching it this time? Um, yeah, I had seen it before. Um, I had forgotten some of the, let's say, uh, culturally and time sensitive moments of the film, um, such as using derogatory terms to describe how people are acting. Um, but, you know, I, I, I remembered the film being a lot more um, lowbrow on my first viewing, and I liked it a lot more this time. I thought it was very smart. Um, you know, we, we could call this film um, Michael Bloomberg's New York, or at least his sense of what he thinks New York was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and But yeah, I, I feel like this film really captures kind of a, a style really well. How everyone talks, even though they say some stuff that might be not so good today, um, it, it fits to the characters, which I found myself kind of shocked in thinking. Um, a moment that stood out to me is um, when the lead character and the lead male and female really are on a bus together and they see some like preppy prom prom people sitting there across from them and they're sitting there all all fucked up from fighting all night long and the woman she goes to kind of brush her hair back almost like she's nervous or she's ashamed of how she looks and all night the two leads have been kind of jousting with each other verbally and he kind of stops her from fixing her hair kind of like no no like let's sit in the moment like you're fine as you are, is how I took it anyway. Um, and I, I forgot moments like that. And I just kind of remembered the uh, the overall idea of a bunch of kind of novelty street gangs <laughs> screaming, you know, at each other for an hour and a half and doing the, uh, as you said, Odyssey all the way back home. Yeah, that's, that's, I like how you call them novelty street gangs because they really are. And lots music man lots of bands especially rockabilly and and punk rock bands have gotten their names from these street gangs of course you have the turbo acs uh and then you have uh, the baseball furies from gearbox records i think for a while it just definitely um influential i think that the bus scene that or the train scene rather uh that you mentioned is by far my favorite scene in this movie because it's the it's one of the it's like the only time when um the outside world what most people who are in a theater watching a movie you know have that luxury would be seeing as the real world these two these two uh couples on prom dates it looks like enter the subway they're stepping into the microcosm of this world of the street gangs right like the street gangs are fighting for their very survival essentially and in walks this these uh two boys and two girls uh who are laughing and giggling in this ridiculous prom get-ups and they sit down and then they 
slowly realize who they're sitting near. Um, and and yeah, uh, uh, Mercy's uh, the the female lead in the Warriors, um, played by Deborah Van Volkenberg. Um, she has this moment where she starts to sort of prune her, you know, uh, uh, preen herself, right? Like she's she's trying to look presentable, uh, and um, and and Swan, the the lead, is played by Michael Beck, is pulls her hand down, like not harshly, but no, like there, and it's just this sense, and then it's just these long shots of like the prom guest faces, like completely just turning you know, nooch, nothing. I would, um, I would just like to point out that they were, they were probably disco dancers at this period of time, not prom goers. Just. I don't know. They both have matching, they both have matching suits with but the ruffles. It was definitely disco. It did have a little Saturday night fever definitely vibe going on. Disco. Uh, then it might be disco prom. Yeah. So it's, it's very, world. it's very out there. I want to say too, as we get into that, I'm talking about disco and in this era um, where, you know, you had sort of this explosion of um, ethnic diversity and this takeover uh, in, or not a takeover, but this perceived takeover by the white status quo that um, people of color and gay people were taking over music, you know, which was the disco movement and eventually the, um, you know, destroy disco burn disco movement whatever uh watch RuPaul's Drag Race this season they touched on it but this sort of microcosm is actually incredibly diverse Walter Hill's film has a huge number of people of color um and while it doesn't explicitly have any um gay characters and as greg said they use uh the the f word uh uh, uh to refer to um feminine behavior uh, and just sort of a taunt, uh, which of course is, is unacceptable in, in, I was gonna say polite society, but really any society, if you're not gay, you know, don't say that word. <laughs> but it's weird though too, because there are characters that from a sort of analytical, critical thinking, you know, literature background, you look and you're like, oh, is this actually, is this character perhaps gay? Um, and a lot of times I think, us film critics kind of go overboard by, by trying to speculate, but that's part of the fun of a medium like film and, and movies and stuff. But Ajax is a really great character in this, played by um, James Remar, who was in, uh, I think most recently in Black Lightning. Uh, he, he had a recurring role as Peter Gamby, if anybody's interested in that DC side project. But he plays Ajax, who's the tough guy of the Warriors, who keeps kind of vying for control and uh, whatnot. And um, he he's the one that calls people this word all the time. Uh, and he also makes many references to, uh, well, let's just say it, butt stuff. Every time he's in a fight, he's like, I'm going to shove that up your ass. Like literally it's all the time to the point where I'm like, this is an extreme example of like a deeply closeted, you know, person uh, lashing out. And I thought it was interesting. It's not the main focus of the story, but I think it's very clear that they're working on, on that in there. And Rembrandt, who is the very pretty, um, he's his like perfect skin and this, and this really nice Afro in the warriors when a group of them like are waiting for their leader to reconvene so they can go home on the train at union station. Uh, they get sort of 
sidetracked by a group of women who lead them to their their hangout and are drinking and he's uncomfortable visibly uncomfortable and we don't know if it's because of his age because he is younger or because of the fact that maybe he's gay or or some version of this and is not comfortable with it it's just those little things are throughout this movie and they don't it's not the main focus so it was not pursued that way but i think it makes it more interesting to uh the, the character dynamics are much more interesting because these elements are there and i think you can make a strong argument that they exist let's jump ahead to jeff jeff had you seen the warriors and uh regardless what was your take this time around um i have seen the warriors but i honestly hadn't really remembered any of it um it felt pretty fresh um you know obviously except for a couple like lines that are kind of iconic that um you know like the come out and play line like just gets in your head like if you've seen this movie that that that's like soundbite is somewhere rattling around in your head because it's it, it's like a key that's unlocked something in your brain um like a you know perfect piece of music or something um but yeah i i, I really liked it um and i'm surprised i didn't remember much about it like i, I honestly didn't remember almost, almost anything except for the like the you know very very broad strokes um they you know like even just that opening scene where cyrus is like speaking to like this massive crowd like that scene is amazing like there's so many extras in this scene uh yeah it, it really brings you right into the film like right off the bat um the um yeah the, i don't know how many people were in that scene but it was thousands and it didn't it didn't feel like um uh it, it just felt really real. Um, and I, and I like that. It kind of transports you to like this, you know, fan, essentially it's a fantasy world. You describe it's like a futuristic version of a place that uh, came from an imagination. Um, and, and it, and it, you get right into it and it's very, um, uh, it's a, it, it's very interesting. And then you go along on this, which is essentially an adventure story, um, which, you know, they always work. <laughs> Mm -hmm. adventure stories are just uh, good entertainment um the thing that i thought was interesting about this movie though is uh these characters like especially the james remark character is very unlikable especially in today's situation and i think the only reason you care that these warriors get out at all is either a sense of like strong justice that they've been framed for something they didn't do or that the villain of the story is just so unlikable. Um, and I think it's a combination of those things that make this film still work. Because <clears throat> um, he is profoundly unlikable. Like, you know, he, uh, I don't, I actually don't even know who this actor is, but like, I really like all the choices that he did. He's just like. Are you uh, talking about the villain who shot Caesar? Yeah. His, uh, his name is David Patrick Kelly. This was his first theatrical role um he he's been in many many things I, I remember him most not for this i actually remember him as as t-bird uh, the murdering rapist of of the gang in uh one of them in the crow with brandon mm. lee um and he does he does make some great choices and it's interesting because he actually isn't given much to work with script wise um and so the fact that he makes these strong choices there's this scene where he keeps because he keeps calling um, to check in with other people about have they got the warriors yet. And of course, he has a vested interest, right? Because he's the real shooter. Uh, and his gang is the rogues. And they sort of have this like leather bar <laughs> motif, um, with these leather hats and stuff. And um, 
and this really cool old, I don't know if it's Edsel or what it is, car that's sort of graffitied up. Uh, he does the come out and play line. But he he really just makes his own material. Uh, when, he, when he's making a call and his friend is getting some snacks or whatever from this young girl working at a newsstand, and uh, he starts eating the chocolate and he's like, let's go. And she's like, you have to pay for that. And he like chucks the bar across the counter and is like, pay for what? And, uh, and that's like his lot, like that's his entire scene, but it gives you what you need to know. This guy is volatile intentionally. So like, he seems completely bent on it. It's interesting too, because um, it would be very easy to go uh, a sort of racial direction with the warriors um, yet Walter Hill seemed to subvert some cases of, of easy, um, you know, uh, black versus white violence, that sort of thing. Uh, and it placed it elsewhere, which I think was really cool because I think it worked more. For example, uh, the turbo ACs, they're the skinhead gang. Um, and they're the first one that the warriors run afoul of, uh, and escape fairly easily, but it's this, they're in a, a vehicle a big bus and they're all hanging off the sides and many of the the white members of this gang or at least white appearing characters are in traditional neo-nazi skinhead garb you know they have doc martens and uh or, or similar boots and um suspenders white shirts skinhead and yet there are probably 50 percent people of color in this gang as well so it, it changed it's like i no longer know what a skinhead means in this context except they just all have shaved heads but they don't remove the racial implication across the board because at the end spoiler alert um when uh the warriors get to coney island and they're on the beach and they're facing off against the rogues who've who've met them there to sort of end things because that's their safest bet is to kill them right um, and, and hide their secret. Uh, the rogues are all white. Um, and the gang that has been sort of seemingly the most influential uh, to, to organize the other gangs, the Rifts, um, are all black. And when they show up in, in a great mass to uh, sort of, to we presume kill the rogues who um, they have discovered they have discovered uh, were the true killers, right? Um, it's a very clear picture. The rogues are white and uh, there's a sea of black faces around them. Uh, and so I think you can really read a lot into that because um, David Patrick Kelly's character, when he asked, why did you do it? Uh, his answer, he, he's laughing. He's giving this like Joker performance and he's laughing, you know, this just, it's, I, I do stuff like that. And if he goes by Luther and or the, his character's name is Luther, I just do stuff like that. And yet it doesn't ring true, right? At least not to me watching the film, because in the opening scene, you have Caesar, who is a person of color, giving this like rousing speech to this sea of, of faces of different races. And it's one of those things where um, the group of all white people shoots this person of color. Um, I mean, this is 1978, 1979. It is not beyond the civil rights movement, right? So uh, especially people are still um, thinking about Martin Luther King in some, in some ways. And I think that the <laughs> visuals very much speak to that. And so in the end, it, it's, they never say it outright. But I think that, again, 
this is one of those movies where there's a lot of subtext and there's a lot of visual cues and you can make strong arguments that this is a, 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 a racial play at this moment. Um, why you might ask, is it not made very obvious? One, but Greg, I think you got to this, um, seeing it as a kid, it seems kind of lowbrow because it's just a bunch of goofy gangs. Like it's fun, but it's a bunch of goofy gangs with gimmicks, like the baseball furies who paint their faces like baseball fans wear, you know, the ridiculous seventies baseball outfits and run around with bats. Um, and then you have, uh, and so that's what it feels like. But then as an adult, I watch, I'm like, Oh, this actually is quite a subtle film in many ways. There's this ridiculous stuff happening, but that's not, but it's more played like the outsiders than, um, uh, I'm trying to think of it, then, then, then shoot them up. You know what I mean? Let's move on to you, Tad, because I've been talking a lot. Tad, uh, had you seen The Warriors? And what was your take this go around? I had seen it, but it had been so long that a lot of it kind of drifted out of my head, similar to, to the experience Jeff had. Um, there were a few scenes that stuck in my head that I still remembered. The ending, the, the fight in the bathroom, which is one of my favorite scenes. That scene in the subway where um, Swan and Mercy kind of break break their barriers down a little bit and kind of connect for a second. And he's like, get out of my face woman. Um, but on, on this rewatch um, it's, it, it's a mixed bag for me. Um, I do enjoy the movie a lot, but I also see that a lot of the acting is flat and I'm never sure if it's on purpose or not, but a lot of the characters are very deadpan, very like they speak very monotone. It, it's like walk up and like, Hey, we got to go. <laughs> it's not, I never really know. Now you're but doing a moist fury in, in person. You're jumping the gun. I, I know. I know. Film. I know. <laughs> but um, it, it's funny you mentioned that the that because I I was sitting there and going, what is director's cut about this besides the transitions? And then I realized it's pretty much only the transitions. And I was like, so this is essentially uh, the Warriors special edition where. Um, and by the way, I make that joke because the transfer of this movie is pristine. It is, it is gorgeous. Beautiful. It reminds me of how gorgeous you go back and watch any of the original Star Wars movies in there in there like after they went back and cleaned them up. They look amazing. This movie is very similar. And it also has that same feel of did they really need to stuff in these these little extra transitions? Not sure. But um, did this do you, Nate, do you know, did this um, come before or after Ang Lee's um, interesting Hulk take from 2003? where they did similar comic book transitions. Uh, I, I imagine this was this re release was after. No. So Ang Lee um, definitely was but, the trendsetter there. But I don't know. I mean, it, it could have it been either. It could have been, yes, of course, Ang Lee's uh, The Hulk has those very, very similar uh, comic panel transitions. Um, and we're definitely going to do an episode on that because we're going to have differing opinions because I think it's a masterwork. Uh, I hate it. And yeah, Mandy and others disagree with me. Um, again, Nick Nolte, I don't know how you could even argue with me. Uh, but okay, so <clears throat> I think this is an interesting point. And, and I think I, it makes, because the changes are so subtle. One thing I do like is he did cut down on a lot of the overlong transition moments in the director's cut, but then he added other them in other places. So I don't really know. It almost felt like a contractual fuck you in some ways, um, like if you can read between the lines, it's like, well, I wish, I guess I wish this could have been different. Like he probably got out his copy at home. You know, one of the copies that whatever sent him a million years ago, I was like, mm, I'll watch it again. Be like, mm, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I hate these cuts. I hate these wipes. Uh, I hate the way it's got that blending on the edges. And he's like, well, I guess we could throw that in there. And there is a different opening, uh, which is Walter Hill reading uh, this little bit, uh, basically comparing, it's a little on the nose for me. It's comparing um, a, 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 I believe Greek, is it a Greek or Roman? It is Greek. Okay. It's Greek. Okay. It's it's uh, what the uh, Xenophones and Abias, I'm saying that wrong, but yeah. Nailed it. It's, yeah, nailed yeah, it. Yeah, he reads that. And I mean, it's very short. It's like 15 seconds or something, I would hazard. Uh, and and then it goes to the story. And it doesn't detract. And I think that at the time, it probably would have made it more obvious to viewers that this was uh, sort of a journey film in that way, like an old, an odyssey for an epic for the contemporary time at the time. So I see him adding that in. I... I could do without it, to be honest. I, I like the 70s aesthetic of the actual cinematography. I don't, I didn't need, I never really cared that much for the comic transitions at all uh, in, in the Warriors, the original version as well, the vibe. Now, does it detract? I don't think so. Uh, is it necessary? No. Uh, do I feel like maybe he was asked and given a lot of money and he's like, how can I change this without changing it at all? Uh, and hey, I'll take that. I will take that. It's it's the most beautiful that the Warriors has ever looked and probably will ever look until we get some sort of spooky 3D stereo optic uh, VR copy, uh, which is going to be weird. Yeah. All right, Mandy, uh, your take. Have you seen the Warriors? And uh, regardless, how do you take it this time? I had seen it. Uh, my memory was pretty true for rewatching it. Um, there was definitely some stuff that I had kind of forgotten. Um, like some of it more like the framing at the beginning i kind of forgot like why they got in the situation to begin with um even though it's pretty critical to the whole movie but like and i'm more the journey like the hopping into the in and out of the subway like over the turnstiles um the mob tough cocktails the the lizzie's definitely not the lezzie's the lizzie's the lizzie's uh, <laughs> okay really shocked they didn't make that joke in there somewhere um yeah i kind of forgotten that there was that girl character that sort of like tags along with them sort of like adopts herself into their gang and decides that she's gonna move to coney island um <laughs> but I, I but like she was a really cool character um to like see again and, and yeah so like i was just like oh this is cool i'm glad we're watching this again basically remember it um uh, but most of like kind of what um sort of like what i think now is it like actually took the time to this time around to like do a little more reading and research on the source material um and as you just mentioned um it is a journey film you could say that it's based on like a lot of classic journey films but it's mainly based on that greek um story that we just mentioned that i totally butchered the name um where a greek army is hired um by a persian emperor to go and like help him take over the throne and then in his name is Sirius, just like the guy that called them all to the park he gets killed they end up with no patron and they're stuck behind enemy lines and they have to like get out of town. Um, so this follows that. And then it was like the um, inspiration for the novel that you mentioned uh, and then made into a movie. Um, I also was like, oh, like, cause diversity and um, equity is like a, a hugely on people's minds now, especially like when um, looking at media and looking at aged um, sources of media 
and I was like, oh, like this is a very diverse cast for like this period of time, like go them. And then I like read more about it and I was like, oh, like it was supposed to be an all black cast. It was supposed to be all people of color based on the novel. And um, the producers really wanted to whitewash it and have an all white cast. Um, and then this director, like, like they fought to have as many people of color as they ended up having but it still is like sort of felt like a loss um considering that the source material is really supposed to speak more strongly um to this fight against the man and this fight against prosecution and racism um and and it kind of it it definitely got watered down in the treatment of the film but i was really glad to see it again and to see that they did end up with the product that they they had um and the quantity of people of color acting in this that they did so yeah i think that it's interesting because as we move into the 80s um it's sort of the start of the the whitening of cinema again because Mm -hmm. of course in the early days we had very much i mean american cinema into the 40s and 50s is exclusively the the domain of of faux high society white people um Mm -hmm. And then you get into uh, the 60s when things started to get a, a little different and a backlash. And of course, the availability of money for movies and drive-in production uh, hit in the 70s. And then in the 80s, you get the uh, video store boom and the VHS uh, hit. So you, you, the 80s gave way to the 90s. And then in the 90s, you get... Uh, a very token representation, right? Like I love Saved by the Bell, but let's look at Saved by the Bell. Um, uh, you have um, Mario Lopez, who is yes, he's he's uh, Latinx, but he's also beautiful. So that was like a big belt, right? Like okay, well you can be in this, but you have to be beautiful. And then we had um, uh, Lark, who is uh, you know black, and she's also very pretty, and um, but she's than just the token and she's always the side character she's a great character and she does a great job but she's the side character and that's what we sort of are relegated to and then when you get into the 2000s it is again this exclusive white club and it's quite stark and now of course we see a pushback against it um but and hey we're gonna be doing a whitewashing episode uh at some point in the near future so keep a lookout for that because there are some shocking casting choices uh in the world of american cinema so <clears throat> I think you brought up women in this movie, which is interesting because we don't get women in the first third of this movie, really. Uh, and then we get Mercy, who is this really strong character. And she's sort of, uh, Tad, you said it, there's this back and forth, this like combat, verbal combat and combat of wills between Mercy and the Swan, the de facto leader of the warriors. Um, and it's this very much notes from the underground play, right? Where it's like, she's, she says she's not a prostitute, but it, she, as far as they're concerned, she's a prostitute. Um, you know, she's quote unquote easy. And um, he has some really mean lines. Like you ought to just have a mattress on your, you know, <laughs> strapped, strapped to your, to your back. back. Um, and <clears throat> we get this sort of understanding where she pushes back, but doesn't, isn't repelled from him. And you get this interesting dynamic where you feel like she's really looking for something that she perceives him to have, which is this sort of, you know. He seems worldly uh, compared to her. Well, and it's this it's this romantic, in a way, but it's like this romanticized knighthood, right? This, um, he's, you know, he's not Ajax who wanted to, to, you know, 
essentially rape her when they first got her uh and he's she's not he's not um one of the other guys who's just gonna hit on it he doesn't hit on her at all um and present pretty much dump her at any opportunity he can right um and, but at the same time he also like the rest of the gang uh well the one other person who who she hangs around with in the gang uh before he's killed is, he also seeks to protect her when the opportunity arises he doesn't go out of his way yet nor does he uh ignore her safety or or whatever he's like go you go do this whatever and so there's it grows and it's sort of this his wall is taken down by her her honesty right because she doesn't say like i'm i don't sleep with people that's not what she says at all she's like i only have this much life like everything is terrible like it's just the everything is implied like we've talked about a lot with this movie um it's everything is so terrible for these people that this is their life um and like when they get back to coney island like how could you like coney island to me is great because it's a slice of americana right but at the same time it's uh, it's a dingy dilapidated uh american even back in the 70s beach right beach town um like you know it's a tourist dump essentially and so like and i coney island we love you this happy to have representatives from coney go whitefish the classic podcast but it's like they get there and swan is like this is what we came back like this is what we're, we're searching for you know like it's just this this the the blinders are off the eyes right everything is put into perspective in that moment that this was a microcosm that they live in and all of this trouble is irrelevant uh and all of their struggle is potentially meaningless um and yet they still pressed on because what else are they supposed to do uh so it's just a very interesting meditative stance for the movie to take and and as swan is the leader who's sort of emotionless um throughout the film it's an it's it's carried through because he is emotionless right he can be the one that continues forward and seems to have nothing get to him but clearly that's not really true um so that was interesting and i'm going to uh one thing we haven't mentioned here because we're mentioning mercy but there are the the lizzie's which uh mandy mentioned which it is an all-female gang which was nice to see um there's there's hints of maybe lesbianism or bisexuality in there. it doesn't it's really not relevant um it's really they're very much a a take on you know the sirens uh in 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 homer's odyssey right like they call to the men to for them to go to their doom uh <clears throat> and and then we also get um the other female character, which we haven't mentioned at all, which is the radio DJ. And the radio DJ is uh, the, the the black woman who is speaking over the radio to all the boppers, which is what the, she refers to the gang members as, giving them updates on where the warriors are and who's failed to stop them and so on and playing music. Um, and then there's a Joe Walsh uh, um, collaborative that plays over the, the final scene. but. Uh, we get the famous scene of the, the her playing nowhere to run to baby as they're trying to make their initial escape from the uh, the assassination scene and she's an interesting character sort of the uh i would imagine and somebody can correct me on the timing of this but a takeaway from the um uh the radio dj in, in vietnam 
um, who, who is the, the female voice um, that everyone listens to on both sides, even though clearly a, a biased government agent. Uh, I, I think that this is, it's a take on that. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot of, I'm not sure what, what parallels or what interesting dissection can be done. I'm sure there's some on that character and its interaction with the film. Um, it's more the, uh, it, well, she sort of plays the role of the muses in the uh, Disney's Hercules film, right? Like they're essentially narrators at that point. Um, she's summarizing the plot thus far to move on and giving us a hint of what's coming next. But also uh, it's this idea that there is this deep connection on the radio waves, which is a mainstream tool right? Uh, unless you're watching Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. And it's a mainstream tool that is being used and is essentially run by this underground gang culture uh, that's presented in this movie, not the reality gang culture. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting thing because that's so often true, right? We get all of our whatever is cool now came from somebody else that we in places of comfort and power have essentially been able to go, oh, I like that. I would like that to be mine now. Uh, and so it's just interesting, yet it's always got its roots back in the underground. So I thought that was interesting. We're going to wrap this one up before we move on to our next feature. Uh, I'm going to go to Greg. Greg, who would you recommend The Warriors to and why? Um, I mean, I think if you consider yourself any kind of film buff, that's who I recommend it to. Um, I think it's going to be 50-50 on if you're just kind of some random person off the street who says, hey, like recommend a movie. And I say, mm, try The Warriors. You might like it. You might not. But I think if you're you know, people like us who have an appreciation for film, we've watched a lot of film, we try stuff that we know we're going to hate just to kind of at least give it a taste. Um, I think this movie's for you. It's It's got a lot to talk about. I think as we've shown, um, it's stylized enough that I think what, what it lacks in aging well is made up for. Um, and again, yeah, I... It, it had more diversity than some films of the time, but it still had less than it should have. I think that's worth it, you know, viewing for yourself. Good points. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeff, would you recommend The Warriors? And if so, to who? Uh, I think exclusively to film buffs. Um, I, I think I, I enjoy this movie and I enjoy it as like uh, the art that it is. But I, I honestly think that it, it is almost hard for it to stand as it's as a film now just because of the how unlikable this particular gang is there's essentially a scene where uh one of the members is uh telling the the others that hey i'm gonna stop and take advantage of this woman i'm gonna force myself on them or they kind of like are like no we gotta get going like they don't really care about the woman they're just like yo we got like a place to be but the thing that really like makes them very unlikable, like the next scene, they're like, shouldn't we go back and check on him? Like, I'm worried that he's like, not okay. And that's just like, okay, these, there's, there's no, these are very unlikable people. And the whole movie hinges on you caring that they get through the film. So like just structurally as like a good, like sit down and watch the film. I don't think it works. Um, I think it is very good art and it's very beautiful. Um, but uh just as like a structurally as a film. Just I think you work. mean it's like an entertainment film that has a yes. problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think it's interesting to note that because spoiler alert, 
he's not okay. Um, and that is an interesting scene because it's very odd because of course he's terrible because he's essentially going to rape this woman if she's not willing to have sex with him. At the same time, she is an undercover cop and he's arrested. But she also, I don't know what crime he'd be breaking because she's soliciting him for sex essentially, um, which is an odd moment. Uh, <clears throat> but he was arrested for being a gang member. Uh, yeah, they are trying weird. to get all gang members. It's but I mean, some she, sort of weird. She certainly didn't have to have to be. You know, she certainly didn't have yeah. to try and get him to take his pants off for that to happen. Um, but I think there's a. I think there's an argument to be made that in these micro. I keep using the word microcosm because it's very appropriate here. This microcosm world of this gang that different rules apply because they have simply. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's clearly wrong. But um, I think of our military, it, like look at casualties of war, the Brian De Palma film with Michael J. Fox, and I think Sean Penn, right? Like the things that that team is portrayed doing in Vietnam are vile. Uh, yet those are our troops, but it's vile. And of course they're vilified in the movie, uh, which anybody doing that should be, but it is a case where it's, it's, it's a whole bunch of, elements mixed together that make you question what is right because you are by sheer virtue of our understanding of plot uh and our desire to see plots wrap up you're watching this movie and like these are our heroes i'm following them oh no they're gonna oh no so-and-so got killed oh so-and-so got picked up by the cops uh, and you're you're trying to see like are they gonna make it are they gonna make it and then it forces you to look and be like i don't these are not necessarily good people um and and so it's 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 this it, it makes you uncomfortable. And I think in that way, you're right. If, if you're just watching a movie for fun, uh, it's probably, it might make you think in ways that you don't want to think about. Uh, and I think that is a, a good definition of what makes it very worthy artistically uh, because it does cause that. Well said, yeah. Exactly. Sad. Uh, do you recommend The Warriors? And if so, why? I absolutely do. I think this is, one of those uh, um, those films in, in American history and in American film history, I don't say it's required watching, but it's gotten to the point where it's not it's no longer. I agree with you. It's not a cult classic anymore. This is kind of just squeezing its way into the regular classics because it is inspired so much at this point. I mean, only a few years later, we had movie we had the Matt Dillon duology with like Rumble Fish and The Outsiders, which took inspiration i mean they had their own source materials but film wise they took inspiration the the joker from 2018 has that has this similar feel and similar uh thought provoking uh you here's your protagonist not a good person your protagonist is not the same as a hero they're not good people you are watching a movie about people who are probably pretty bad i mean if you're in a street gang chances are you're doing some sketchy shit it's it's just that's just the reality and uh, it, it, this is one of those movies where it makes me kind of wish that uh, you could actually go to a city and actually have some empty spots. But you know, for, for you, you go to a city typically, it's like, where is this empty street? There is right. almost at yeah. 24 hours a day, there's almost always a bunch of people walking around. There's no way you're gonna get a nice, quiet, empty street to yeah, just I'm have like, a no nice- No wonder there are so many gang members. Everyone is a gang member and there are no people in this world. Uh, it's, that is certainly true. Yeah, it's also it's also one of those funny things. Um, the premise itself is a little flimsy. You know, the premise is there are like a hundred thousand street gangers out there. They outnumber the police. 
yeah, but there's a city of millions of people and a lot of them probably have home arms and all that where these guys are swinging around baseball bats. I'm not sure that that whole like, oh, we own the city. No, you fucking don't. No, sorry, that that's going to end poorly for you. But I digress. I recommend this movie. I also recommend the the other two uh, just as a like if you want something in a similar vein. Rumble the outsiders, and the outsiders. Yeah, the, the, they're they're great. Like these this is, makes a great trilogy of just uh you know youth street gangs that that sort of feel yeah i think that that's accurate and when you mentioned um sort of the believability issue it, that's why i think they said it in a near future at the time is trying to try and get around that and it's a weird thing because i feel like this film is often lumped in with um kubrick's uh, clockwork orange a clockwork orange but based off the novel um starring of course malcolm mcdowell who's a brilliant actor i actually don't like that film i know i'm gonna this is my uh this is my um it's okay nate I'm controversial there yet brave statement um not that and i love kubrick i love kubrick very very much and i love malcolm mcdowell but what's interesting is is that to me if i had to choose between these two movies which i think are often lumped together i would choose this one and the idea is that this one still takes place in in an area where we as mainstream people who live in in the normal side we live in the daylight so to speak um can see the crossover and it actually by being more quote mainstream in its in its portrayal and its world building it actually is more effective than something like a clockwork orange which goes out of its way to be uh, outre and like um and also the stilted language that is takes place with some of the made up words mixed with the seventies, you know, uh, jive talk, not racially implied, but I'm sure it, it is derived from that, but um, is, is more understandable and more effective than say clockwork oranges, essentially gibberish output. Um, and, you know, I'm, Feel free to write in, yell at me. Well, totally well fine. To, I mean, to Jeff's point, um, Clockwork Orange also has entirely fucking unlikable people versus at least the Warriors. You can kind of find a couple people to enjoy. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's I mean, what, again, like Clockwork Orange would be in that same boat for me. It's just, it's really just like a movie buff film. Like it, it's uncomfortable and unpleasant uh, in a lot of ways. And like you have to be enjoying it for the art. Well, exactly. Not like enjoying clock- it for the art part. Well, exactly. Well, like a Clockwork Orange too is also visually very striking, um, and so it, it has its element. You can never fault Kubrick for visual panache, but that's a digression. Mandy, would you recommend The Warriors, and if so, why? I would. Uh, kind of movie buffs, people interested in movies for the same reasons the guys mentioned. I do want to just touch on one point. Tad asks, like, why are all these streets so empty? Like, what's the deal? This is weird. Um, keep in mind that this was from 1979 at the beginning of the early 80s recession where there was a huge spike in um, gasoline like oil prices due to some stuff happening in the Middle East. So that could be why they decided to take that artistic direction with like things like not having a lot of automobiles happening having that more Mad Max feel to like the bus of skinheads. Yeah, it was desolate for New York City. Right, but like they were probably doing near future where like oil was too expensive for people to be using cars perhaps and there was no no zinc so there wasn't enough uh, zinc to go around to use their firearms perhaps yeah (laughs) they also weren't allowed to take their guns to the big meeting so um they're not allowed to pack heat they were not but anyway so that's it but yeah movie buffs 
people interested in the history of cinema, people interested in how um, actual history is represented in cinema um, might enjoy this. Sounds good. Well, that rounds it up with me. Um, I, I would recommend this film across the board. I think people who are interested in, uh, of course, film students should watch this movie because there are many things that are accomplished with a very small budget. Um, of course, the cinematography and things like a bus, those are not attainable by no budget productions, but everything else pretty much is. Um, and uh, there's a lot of very intentional camera work, the zooms, the set, the, the, uh, um, the setup shots of, of buildings and locations, very intentional. Uh, and the vibe is, is strong. Uh, throughout the film it it is sort of manny mentioned we've talked about this with films like cruise and, and stuff uh it, it may be supposed to be in uh alternate near future uh in the 70s but it feels like the 70s um and that's not to say i didn't find it dated because it is like looking in a different world uh and and from a historical perspective i think it's very gratifying to see so uh, I recommend it to everyone I, the reason i recommend it not just to film buffs is i do think that this the way that it's presented and the pacing will carry you along i think you'll be interested and i think it will promote you to think especially with the end which they make it to coney island but it's sort of a i will not even going to say bittersweet because the entire drive was the journey and now that they're there you're left only with emptiness right they don't we don't know what's going to happen they don't know what's going to happen doesn't there is nothing right they've been fighting for nothing i think is a strong takeaway um but themselves and that's all they have that little bit of life that mercy talks about so i think it's 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 poignant that's going to wrap up this section we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with 2011's moist fury we'll see if greg's still here Hey, cult and classic crew, friends and fiends of the pod, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Nate, I don't have any money, and if I did, I'd be spending it on cool things like buttons and custom trading cards and zines that are unique and made each week by the cult and classic podcast family. And guess what? You can do both of those things at once. You can support cultandclassicpodcast.com and get awesome swag like buttons and custom trading cards that are printed on actual trading card stock by actual trading card printers and autographed by the artist and also zines like classic issues of rearted with comics and illustrations and interviews as well as brand new cult and classic podcast family publications that uh, are brand new so you'll get them first in line these are awesome, awesome things that you can get just by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get videos of our episodes. You can see all our lovely shining faces as well as exclusive content like uh, extra episodes, film reviews, book reviews, and things like commentary by us on our short films, which you'll also be able to see. If you want to pay a little more, $5 a month per se, US, then you get an awesome autographed custom trading card. These are official printed uh, at the same place that prints every other trading card you've ever bought, and they're autographed by the artist. These are exclusively for Colton Classic Podcast and inspired by our episodes. They, you can't get them anywhere else except through us. Only $5 a month, you get it shipped right to you. Shipping is free. If you pay $10 a month, if you are a true drinker of the Kool-Aid for cultandclassicpodcast.com, then you will get uh, the trading card, access to all of the 
content that is exclusive to Patreon members, and you will get a brand new zine every month, whether it's a classic uh, copy of a rearded zine uh, with interviews, comics, art, all sorts of cool stuff, or brand new Cult and Classic Podcast family publications. Those will get sent straight to your door. Plus there's usually extras like pins, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So you're doing two great things. You are spending money on awesome swag and you're supporting Cult and Classic Podcast. I know it's tough right now in the pandemic. If you can do it, join us at Cult and Classic Podcast Patreon. If you can't, why don't you recommend it to a friend? We all have those rich friends and uh, they can spread it around a little more. I'm just going to say it. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Colton Classic Podcast loves you. We are back. Uh, we're going to talk about filmmaker, uh, writer, director, Chris Seaver's film, Moist Fury from 2011. Okay. There's going to be very conflicting uh, views of this film. And I think probably that's how Chris Seaver prefers it. Um, but Chris Seaver's made a gajillion films. Probably the most well-known to date is Terror at Bloodfart Lake uh, and its sequel, uh, The Revenge of said Bloodfart Lake. There's also Filthy McNasty, the series, and Mulva, Zombie Ass Kicker, Sex Squatch, many, many films. But we're here to talk about his sort of love letter to girl gang movies. Uh, so let's, let's just dive right into the plot here. The plot, this is a comedy. Um, it is a comedy. Uh, it is it is it is ultra low budget. This is presented by um, Sub Rosa Studios uh, SRS uh, releasing, which is a, a supporter of the pod, big fan of SRS. Thank you guys so much. They release, check them out. Dirt cheap films. Uh, they release amazing things like lesser known kaiju films from Japan, all the way to these ultra no budget features, all the way to. Uh, classic hard to find shot on video 90s um, video rental store stock so check it out it's, uh, run by Ron Bonk uh, um, also no budget filmmaker so SRS we love them but this is Moist Fury this film is about uh, and guys there's going to be some uh, off-color language in this review simply because the film is so chocked full of it um, Moist Fury is about the girl gang called the Crimson Queefs who uh, has the, the best bitch fighter uh, named Dubak, uh, who defeats Doomblade, uh, one of the few male characters in this movie's uh, girl gang. Uh, he puts on the fights, and so he gets tired of losing, so he has his girl gang, the Roast Beefs, uh, kill Dubak. Well, the, uh, <laughs> the aged, he's not aged, he's like, I don't know, late 30s, uh, do... Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Deathbone. I, I can't keep a straight face for some of this because it actually, it makes me giggle. <laughs> Deathbone uh, runs uh, afoul of this murder and they steal his Toblerone bar. Uh, this is the roast beefs before they escape. Well, the Crimson Queefs think that Deathbone has killed their beloved Dubak. Uh, when he finally clears his name, he helps train them so they can take on the roast beefs. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to spoil the end here. I think we're just going to move on because things do not end as you would expect them to end. This film is full of simulated sex. And I'm using that in the most broad frame topic because there is nothing approaching sex in this movie. And I'm actually quite, um, 
I'll give, I'm going to give Chris Eber credit for this because for all of the ridiculousness and the uh, off-color humor and misogyny that's intentionally humorous, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that because it's so ridiculous. Um, it, there, is, there is no nudity in this film. There's really no nudity. Surprising uh, for a Chris Eber film. Huh? Surprising for a Chris right. Eber. And Chris Eber is no stranger to that. So I think it's, it's kind of fascinating. And I give him credit for having a girl game film where, uh, and an exploitation, no budget genre where there's really no nudity. Uh, and, but there's lots of simulated sex through several layers of clothes. Um, yeah. So you've got these it's characters. The, it's the photo, like the, the money shot photo. Is that also not real nudity? Cause I, yeah, there, so there's a fake yeah. penis on display a couple of times. Okay. Um, that was also the fake penis I in that photo. I, no. I had a little trouble. I was watching it on my laptop. So I'm pretty like, sure it's, I'm pretty sure it's, it's not quality. a real penis. Okay. Um, uh, there's, there's a couple of, there's a couple of fake penises on display, which is becoming more and more common. I, I'm uh, reviewed several movies this year that have had full frontal male nudity, both real and fake. Uh, and, and so I think it's, it's fascinating that that's becoming more commonly acceptable, certainly not in the mainstream, but in, in the underground and good. I mean, it should be an equal opportunity nudity these days. But anyway, Doomblade is played by um, uh, Billy Garbarina. And apologies, Billy, if I mispronounce your name. He's been in many features, including other Chris Seaver features and also some non-Chris Seaver features that are probably much more mainstream. He plays Doomblade, which is sort of like, I'm trying to think, sort of like if um, Bo Bridges was pretending to be still so frank stallone. stallone not even not even yeah not even not even sylvester stallone frank stallone after a second stroke um like he's got his look on the side and he just talks like this the whole time and it's great i i literally will laugh every time he's on screen um and i because i hadn't seen the previous chris siever films that have death bone because he is in other features um i i didn't know this character yet and so I actually wasn't sure if he was supposed to be physically disabled because of how off the wall he was until we finally get to see him have conversations with people. And, uh, and yeah, he's this, I don't even, you wouldn't even call him an anti-hero because he's not even a hero in any way, shape or form. He's just kind of a big blundering, um, misogynistic, uh, every protagonist man um who really wants revenge for having his toblerone stolen and he doesn't and, care about anybody else and getting um, kicked in the balls don't forget about that oh he gets kicked in the ball several times yeah uh and and yeah and and it's i don't even there's just it's one of those movies that we're just gonna have to talk about individually because there's so much going on here now if there's a couple of scenes that are so disgusting in this movie to me even though they're they're all clearly fake um but the worst comes up early on and i'm not a i'm not squeamish when it comes to like bodily exclusions or whatever uh but um when Doomblade, the male lead of the other gang propositions Dewback, and she reaches in her uh pants and pulls out a wad of i don't even know Yeast. spidery white I think it's yeast. It does look like some Viscous. yeast discharge. It, it looks like vaginal discharge from someone who is, is has an infection, and he she throws it on his crotch. Um, that is by far the most <laughs> repulsive lowbrow thing in this film. And he and Chris Seaver had the the forethought to put it within the first ten minutes. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's a hey, if you can sit through this 
you're going to have a good time with the rest of this movie. And if you can't, well, then you're probably on your friend Nate's podcast and you have to. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, that was the most insane, but let's, let's go, uh, let's, let's jump around here. Tad, what were you expecting from this movie? And, uh, what's your takeaway now that you've seen it? I expected more than, so this is a movie that surprisingly, it looked like it actually cost less than thanks killing. Oh, sure. Like, Absolutely. Like thanks killing cost more than this movie. Yes. Now keep in mind. Um, I had seen other Chris Seaver films before because I was introduced to the Teen Ape series, like Teen Ape Goes to Camp. And the when that's your introduction, this movie was actually pretty tame in comparison because um, I was sitting through this movie and going, this feels like a, a high school film combined with $300, some cocaine, and uh, um, oh, what was, was a half porno like a half porno, like didn't go full porno, didn't even go like softcore, just we wanted to make a porn, but nobody was willing to actually take their pants off. So we kind of just did this instead. And we want you to think this is going to become a porn. Right. Now it's never going to happen. I've seen Chris Seaver films where a full on fake dick is totally screwing a chick's chest. All right. Now that set the stage for what I was, what, what usually I expect from a Chris Seaver film. Um, this uh now the acting was pretty bad but at the same time it was tolerable enough because everyone everyone played such a ridiculous character and did it well that's the thing that, everyone's in on the joke in this movie yeah it didn't bother me that much that everyone was bad at acting it found the acting to be very uniform yeah, yeah. like they were they were it was like a bar that was set they were like this is where we want to hit like and I'm going to give a shout out to, to Jesse Ames, who also helped produce this movie. She plays Skin Tag, uh, the, the lead crazy of the... Uh, uh, the redhead? The roast beefs, yes. Um, because she is giving... We, we talked about this off the air. She's giving strong Natasha Leone vibes. Yeah. Um, and also just not afraid to chew the scenery like down to the studs. I was gonna say like a little Dana Carvey Garth sure. vibes as well. Like a yeah, little bit. absolutely. Like head pressed all the way forward, like a half mullet, um, mm -hmm. full on. And uh, yeah, okay, I get that. I, I'm, I'm for sure on that. Now, Jeff, what was your expectation for Moist Fury, and what's your take now that you've seen it? Um, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I had any expectations going in. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I guess. I guess when, when you send a movie and like there's kind of like some just some hints in the air that it's going to be a bad film. I my my I guess maybe this is a, our first one. I just start with Shark Exorcist and I, I start like playing around with how does it compare there. Uh, this movie is like intelligible. Uh, it actually is like, you know, it, it seems to be kind of like everybody's in on the joke. So it actually can be fun. Um, so it's you know it's bad but like bad in a way that's fun to watch um and so overall i enjoyed it the humor is it, and actually you know what the other movie that it kind of reminded me of it kind of reminded me of rupaul's um star, booty. star booty a little bit uh but like actually kind of like funny in parts um like i, I feel like <laughs> that's such this a film read, is... but it's not untrue <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like star booty like was i felt like it was trying for this kind of like self-aware like everybody knows they're in like a scene and they're just like having a fun riffing um but maybe they didn't go far enough in star booty maybe it just wasn't ridiculous enough um 
to to be entertaining because i wasn't super entertained by that film um but this one actually got me laughing a couple times yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna hazard to say that um tad your your mention of thanks killing is is accurate and also um let's can we just talk that there's just mentioned that there's a lot of film quotes worked into this uh as actual dialogue including thanks killing um they use uh the famous thanks killing live with the same same rhythm and everything of nice tits bitch um and if you think that that chris siever is not intentionally uh quoting that you're kidding yourself it is an absolute intentional uh uh reference to the 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 two year older uh thanks killing film and there are many others more mainstream uh, as well like star wars like they're like yes. no, revenge of the sith of all things like yes. they quoted revenge of the sith they did uh yeah and and i think Jeff, you brought up Shark Exorcist, which is, and go listen to our Shark Exorcist. It's our very first episode. We paired it with uh, with Exorcist 3 slash Legion. Uh, we also interviewed Donald Farmer, great guy, super excited uh, to have him on, uh, really enjoy his work. That said, Shark Exorcist is our bar here at Colton Classic Podcast. We for, said it early. For the, for the lowest uh, watchable feature. Um, and I believe... Jeff actually had to watch it several times to try and make sense of it. Uh, and I don't know. That Parts of ever, it several times. I, I don't know if you ever <laughs> succeeded. But yeah, compared to that, this clearly actually had things written on pages. Um, it actually had a script and there is a plot. And the plot at the end, instead of having, we are trolled so hard by this movie because instead of having a resolution at the end, everything are are essentially our lead character just leaves uh and the entire movie collapses around him uh and that's that's the ending of this movie and so the entire thing is a big joke like not just the material in the movie but the movie itself feels like uh a sort of a meme come to life you know um interesting interesting stuff greg what were you expecting? Yeah, Nate. What were you expecting? Of- <laughs> this dude's queued up and ready. What were you expecting of Moist Fury and what did you get? Yeah, you'll notice I haven't said a fucking word so far because I've been I've been biding my time. Um, Nate, we went we went to, to the say same. This, by the way, before Greg speaks, Chris Seaver, uh, reach out to me. I would love to have you on the podcast. Yes, Earnestly, please. we'd really like to talk shop. Um, so that 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 stands. Greg, what did you think of Moist Fury? Um. I I didn't like a single fucking thing about it. <laughs> um, you know, I'll give it some credit. It was a film. There was a narrative that I could follow. It was cohesive. It it had beats. It had acts. It had the structure there. Um, but I'd like to bring up Poe's Law of the Internet, which is anything so extreme um, in its viewpoint or what it states, you cannot tell if it's meant to be parody or sincere. And I think that this skirts that line of, is it supposed to be tongue in cheek and they're in on the joke or is the joke on them? Are they sweet D? Um, (laughs) this is, I just want to, in full disclosure to the audience and listeners, uh, uh, worldwide of Colton classic podcast, Greg and I once worked on a musical script wherein the opening scene has two brothers covered in feces while singing about adventure. So I did want to, we know something about being covered in shit. I I did. (laughs) I did want to throw that out there. Yeah, no, there was, so there's a, because 
Well, here, here, let me, let me, let me say this. There were some moments that I thought were genuinely fucking hysterical, but the ride to get there, I wanted off. I wanted off really bad. Like, um, one, one that I wanted to highlight that was near the end. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to call it the second sex scene of the film, um, in which, um, bone blade bone saw Jeff, whatever whatever Jeff the fuck bone. his name was <laughs> um he's having sex with the woman that he andromeda yes. andromeda that he convinces you know what lesbianism is a phase and you just need i i, bl- I believe i quote a deep dicking to <laughs> cure that phase yeah. um but he they have sex and it's 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 mildly funny and I'm like, okay, I get it. Like they're being, they're doing weird positions and yeah, haha. But then when it pans out at one point and the pizza chef sensei is underneath them, like giving a thumbs up and he's not, he's not in the sex. They're just having it on top of him. And he's almost there like, like thumbs up. Like I'm so happy to be here, but also you're Listen, both doing so good. Listeners, Mandy is muted right now, but I seriously think she might die of lack of oxygen because she's laughing. And Jeff's face is as red as his beard. Here's the thing. And that, Greg- that scene was that scene. I will like, you know what? I was like, Hey, you, you took me out of my melancholy funk that I've been in this whole film. And I genuinely had fun for about 10 seconds. And and which is funny because the scene's about six minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. It's a long one. I want to mention that the film is an hour and seven minutes, give or take. And so I think it 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 sits at the right length um, because if it were longer, it would be too much for everyone. Not just. Well, if it for... was longer, I would have had to do my viewing in five parts instead of four. <laughs> so that really worked so, out. So here's the here's what cracks me up. So <clears throat> I had to. There's. Speaking honestly about cult film, especially horror film, uh, although this isn't really horror, but we do a lot of horror here at Cult and Classic Podcast and tons of low budget, no budget film. Being culturally aware of things like women's rights, LGBTQIA plus rights, um, uh, BIPOC, people of color, rights and the struggles, all these things. Every once in a while you come, quite frequently actually, you come across a movie that earnestly does not understand why it's being hurtful to one or more of those groups or worse, intentionally espouses beliefs that are hurtful to them uh, and purports it as being correct. Um, and that, that, that dialogue that Deathbone gives um, denouncing uh, lesbianism as just a fad that everyone gets over once they've had the right, as you quote, deep dicking, like it's the moment where I had it. It's the, every time I see a movie like this, I have to stop. And I have to take stock of everything around the movie to see if it's actually a joke that it's aware of, or if I have to be deeply disturbed and offended because, um, and here's, here's, this is going to sound very stereotypical, but here goes. Uh, what sold me on that, that clearly you cannot have a movie with this many women with tattoos and sleeves and not have them all be aware that at some point, some non-traditional sexuality is real. So that was what told me that everything was a joke and allowed me to enjoy it. But I will say if, if this film was a high budget film and I'm talking high, like millions and millions of dollars, I would have had serious issue with it because right. it was so low budget. I'm like, none of these women are getting career starts off of this. None of them are getting buku bucks to shut the fuck up and do the movie. So 
I have to imagine that they're all in on the joke and enjoying the joke. They look like they're having fun. That's what, that's that too. actually yeah. everyone in here looks like they're having fun and it's kind of infectious. <laughs> like um, I, well, here, here, I'll, I'll give you my, this is my big takeaway pushback <laughs> is when, when someone explains an inside joke to you and there's kind of that awkward moment of like, oh, it's like really funny. And you're like, I don't get it. I'm sorry. Like it must've been one of those be there. Thanks. This is, tangential where you explain the inside joke to me and i get it i get the inside joke i see the punchlines. i just don't think it's funny and so i'm just sitting here while you're like screaming into your own abdomen and i'm just i'm just trying to get through the moment so that i can do something else totally that's the thing to me i did find there's there's a couple of this movie is at its strongest when it set you up to believe that it has zero intellectual quantity and then it actually has something like a wordplay joke do you know what i mean like those are the moments when i genuinely laugh because the dis the level of discourse is so far under my shoe that when they give me something that's genuinely funny or well written um or a really great acting moment um like no don't hit me don't whatever it is don't hit me in the face with your elbow in my eye like something so ridiculous that like <laughs> I, I can't help but laugh. Like it disarmed me to the point where my reaction is completely genuine and unpreventable um, on my behalf. Oh, but um, I do. I do want to highlight one moment of really solid acting. Um, uh, Deathbone and Doomblade, the bits where both of them are admiring each other's names in separate moments. <laughs> that was, totally that was per moments. perfect, perfect delivery. Yeah. Absolutely. Perfect. Um, that's and of course, um, I think me. I think I think Lactasia's, um, or no, not um, who, who? Sorry, spoilers. Who died? Who died at the very beginning? Oh, do do back, do back. Yes, um, do back's death and like all of her taunts to them. <laughs> she, I, I did miss her throughout yeah. the film. I thought she, she was, was really, role, yeah. really solid. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I, I will credit. Here's the thing. We're laughing, Greg. Greg is not wrong, guys. The fact that maybe four out of five of us really enjoyed this movie by Chris Seaver and, and Greg had a miserable time, it is not invalid. There is absolutely truth that this is a terrible movie. It's intentionally a terrible movie, but it's a terrible movie nonetheless. But the fact that I was... I, it's made me laugh more than so many others because it it's not just that it's extreme because it's also sort of childlike and innocent in a bizarre way. Like the ideas and, and the way it's presented is so we made this at home over spring break in high school, even though it's not in high school, right? That it's the kind of thing where, as Greg said, if you were in it and you guys all sat down at the rap party to watch it, like you just made for fun, you would all die 24 seven and lose your mind. And then you would go to show it to other people who aren't in it. And there's a couple of people who'd be like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, can we be in the sequel? Can we do this? And then most people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? This is terrible. Like, and trust me, I've made those movies. I've made plenty of those movies. In fact, here's a little story. So I made a film, uh, several short films, and they were online at one time. And they will be online again, but they were online at one time. And um, this, this girl who I knew who we were going to make uh, some shorts with and didn't happen, probably because of this moment, I uh, said, um, I watched your, we were getting ready to, to work on a project together and she said, I watched your short films. They were really bad. 
why did you put them online? Like that genuine question was just like, okay, you and I have nothing in common. Wait, wait who the fuck was this? I don't even remember her name. Um, you you did not. Uh, she. It's she, disguising the gender. It was me, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, we can talk after this, Ted. But but yeah, um, no, it it's so and it was such a genuine like question that like I was like, I I wasn't offended because you were not wrong about any of what you just said, but the mere fact that you just brought that up to me offends me um because it shouldn't have had to be said it should not have had to be said we all know that you know and that's where the self-awareness in this movie comes in and the fact that i do think there's some funny moments i mean the fact that in the climactic battle um because andromeda who uh turns out to not be a lesbian uh because she finally has had uh the sex of her life with doomblay uh excuse me Deathbone, whatever uh they <laughs> uh she, right she Duback was her her lesbian lover and so she's fighting against uh uh was it doomblade doomblade and the roast beefs for revenge but they don't know why deathbone is fighting well it's because they stole his toblerone which goes for like seven bucks now as they say uh and that's his entire purpose is to fight and kill uh deathbone or doomblade my bad they're d names chris Eber, you should have switched it up it's gonna reviews are a nightmare <laughs> with two d names uh but yeah it's all about the toblerone and um and and the cast members react as though they're the audience like as though the audience is supposed to act i mean we're not surprised because we've seen what character this is okay at one point he has a fake dick in the bottom of a popcorn bucket um and says i thought it was a pretty good idea um, I just, it was magic to me when, when they actually have the conversation that like when he makes everyone, Deathbone makes all the other characters shut up so he can tell Doomblade that he's going to have his revenge because they took his Toblerone. Like when he stops the entire movie to do this, it was kind of brilliant. Um, and I also want to say the scene at the end, I won't really spoil this, but when he's running away at the end, this is the final scene uh, in the movie. Billy's run as Deathbone is the most comical, most perfect moment of physical comedy. I've drawn that panel in comics so many times uh, and to actually see a real life person do that down the road, that was, that was a bucket list moment that I can check off. Um, and so I just, I can't, I can't thank enough for that. I could have hated the movie and that wouldn't matter, but back to this. Um, I'm, I'm so far off track because I'm reliving these moments. Who have I not asked yet? I've asked, have I asked anybody other than Greg? You asked, asked Jeff and Greg, correct? Me. I asked you? Yeah, I was first. Oh, you were first? Jeff, did I ask you? Yes. <laughs> Okay. Well, I guess that's it anyway. Second go. <laughs> Mandy, I see you. Put your hand down. Mandy. I feel Mandy. like Hermione Granger right now. Mandy, what did you think of this? What did you expect from this film? And what do you think of this film now that you've seen it? Oh my God. I had no expectations other than that it was going to be the, the weirder, crappier one because I'd already seen Warriors. Um, and that was our classic. Um, so no expectations. I hadn't seen anything from this director before. 
Uh, but it was what I needed this week. And I am apparently the target audience, like not Greg. So um, <laughs> I enjoy, like, it took me a little while to get into it. I was like, oh, like, this is going to be like bad. Like the acting is horrible. The sets are horrible. The props are horrible. Uh, <laughs> like everything is horrible. But then I'm like, oh, wait, but it's all like, um, like, not on purpose it was like it's clearly what their budget kind of dictates like the level that they're going to be at but they like were like this is the level that we're going to be at and like we're going to embrace it and we're gonna like play with it and it's almost like very close to breaking the fourth wall but like they never did but it's almost like you can tell that they're like they're like we're in on it and like we're telling you that we're in on it but we're not like turning to the camera and telling you that at any time uh, I thought it was just so great but I mean like the bucket of popcorn that you mentioned it is not like a movie theater bucket of popcorn it is probably like a paint pail like a, like a like a paper paint container that you would get at the hardware store with popcorn written on it like as a prop uh, like high school theater not even high school theater like I don't even know like and that sounds like too much effort considering you can buy a, like a plastic tub of like the same thing for like two right. dollars to go to a theater and get a paper a, one ex- yeah you'd be like could I just have like an extra one or whatever what a split I don't know like make an excuse or not just be like I just want the container um <laughs> but yeah they didn't even do that they just wrote popcorn on the side of something like super cheesy but I like like and then as Greg said like is that level intentional or not like unclear but like kind of feel like it was um I particularly loved all the shots of the ceiling like the that acoustic tile with all the water stains on it that like made you really believe that they were filming this in like the community college like classroom or something like that that they all belong to um but yeah it just um all that came together for me I think my absolute favorite scene was um when uh do what's his doom blade eats the trobolone because like, Look, yeah we're trying to get sponsors here man can you please <laughs> say the product correctly they don't even say the product correctly that's like a whole scene that they make up all these different ways to say it um but like he's eating it and like all the girls are just like jizzing themselves like watching yep. him eat this chocolate bar and i, I mean to be I, fair it is Toblerone exactly so i was just like that's that's epically genius i love it that's toblerone get it toblerone.com slash colton classic podcast for 15 percent off your order of toblerone yeah no because they're like seven dollars now right right yeah um yeah yeah. like i feel like it wouldn't have obviously it wouldn't have worked it wouldn't have hit like the funny bone for the people that do find it funny if it had higher production value as greg pointed out like we would be very concerned if this movie was made by people that had more money and put more polish on it because it's a turd and it's not meant to be polished i think that's fair like if kevin bacon were sitting like we're leaning over i don't know uh if you want to be less age appropriate than possible you know like uh, jennifer lawrence saying like you just need a deep dicking like it's going to be a terrifying radically like it's it's going to be the trump family's greatest film like it's just a monstrous abomination but when you have 
Chris Seaver's death bone saying it, it's in this matter of a fact, out of the side of your mouth kind of way. Like, I don't know if Billy had to wipe drool off a lot of the way. Yeah, I'm calling you Billy. I hope that's okay, Billy, because uh, I, I don't want to butcher your last name anymore. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that across the board, this is the kind of movie that no budget filmmakers would probably be really proud to put out because there's a lot of stuff going for it in that as ridiculous as it is, it is as it as completely tasteless as it is, it does have a script. It, the trolling of the audience seems to be intentional as opposed to accidental. Um, it doesn't try and take itself more seriously than it's capable of. Um, I want to mention too, that there's like an explosion on the cover of the DVD and the poster. Uh, there are no explosions in this film. Um, I don't even think there's a car in this film. Uh, and there's a, a car, except in the background when they're talking about this post-apocalyptic wasteland and a car drives by. Um, that was pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's just everything. It, Chris Seaver understands the scope of his productions. He doesn't reach beyond what he can realistically attain in a, an easy-ish way. And I'm not saying it's easy to make a movie. It's incredibly hard, even a no-budget feature. So in order to do that, actually, uh, in actuality, you need to make sure you understand scope. Um, we've seen cases where the scope is completely off, and it's a god-awful film, uh, and no one wants to watch it, not even the friends that were in it, most likely. Um, and I don't think that's the case for this. So We've talked enough about uh, the interestingness that is Moist Fury. I'm going to start with you, Jeff. Would you recommend Moist Fury? And if so, to who? Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I, I guess suppose it's just the people who enjoy the irreverent, you know, this is like a big fart joke, but I don't even know if there is a fart joke in this movie. Um, I don't think there was. Um, they have seen you know, it's just like a lot of like bodily function jokes. Um I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy this just type of comedy. This just kind of like gross, like stupid, like, uh, you know, like I, I'm certain that they were self-aware, but you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they, maybe the scriptwriter actually believes that, you know, lesbians are, are fake. Um, but that, that women throw giant wads of yeast goo at each other. Yeah. The, and there's people. the thing guys, I'm not trying to say that, men are less dis like uh, that penises are less disgusting than vaginas this is not the case i just think as mammals we are vile and the symbol of anything leaving our body and being put on camera is in turn vile and it's intentionally vile in this case um i think chris siever that was his way of like giving a hundred um question essay prompt at the first day of class to see who doesn't show up next week and you know weeding the herd that was the herd thinning of moist fury uh, yeah so yeah overall i think it's funny uh, a lot of people like greg so uh we we actually did a comedy which i think i was the only person that didn't like it if you don't think it's funny there's nothing else in this film there's not a single thing that's going to get you through it it's just if it's funny or not if it makes you laugh or not, that's it. If it'll make you laugh, you'll like it, period. So watch the first 10 minutes and then choose to go on, I guess. That's probably the right way to do it. <laughs> and sorry, Greg, you had to watch the rest. Fair fair point. Greg, no. would, you, would you recommend? No. 
Oh, sorry. We're, we'll finish like the to... question. <laughs> Would you recommend Moist Fury and why? Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> and, um, I, Jeff, I mean, you, you really hit that nail on the head. I'm, and I think that that's, I mean, that's the comedy uh, pit is if you don't find it funny, you don't find it funny and there's nothing else there. Um, I guess the side recommendations, um, Kung Fury. I mean, that's another mid-budget. I don't remember what their Kickstarter hit, but that I think kind of left the stratosphere of being considered true low budget, but it is an indie film that's obviously a group of friends coming up with something crazy together. Um, if you want something that's high budget trying to offend you and skirting the line, uh, consider the Postal film. by uh, Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a modern classic and making you just upset watching it. Um, but that said, um, to Chris and the team, like you, this is a film that I have to applaud for being exactly what they wanted it to be. It, it doesn't mince words. It knows what it wanted. I just wasn't along for the ride. And yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, that's totally fair. Uh, Mandy. Would you recommend Moist Fury and to who and why? Um, I guess if you like bodily humor and really dumb stuff that, or like almost like self-deprecating humor, because even though those aren't the kinds of jokes that are scripted, like the whole movie is making fun of the fact that it is a movie. Um, so you might, you might get down, get down for that. Um, I thought the costumes were really good, actually. Like, the sense of style and, like, what they, they made for their choices. So, like, perhaps, I don't yeah, know. The fact that in some closet in, in one of one of the uh, the cast members or production people's closet yeah. is just, a, like, a bunch of hanging um, denim jackets and vests that have crimson queefs emblazoned mm-hmm. on the back and, like, bedazzled jewels. Like, that, that I want one. Um, right. You know, send, send it on over. But I think like Chris. one of the girls was wearing like nylons under chaps with like a thong or something. Yes. Like it was, yeah, it was like yeah. pretty unique choices that were made uh, that were kind of cool. Like just a little bit different. It, I don't know, but yeah, you've got to like potty humor. Like it's like, there's not even that many poop jokes. Just like, yeah, it's, it's just weird. very low brow here. Like it's, it's they're very not afraid low to be crass. Crass is a good yeah. word. Crass. Right? Yeah, crass. Yeah, you don't, you're not looking for something fancy. It'd be a fun one. Tad, would you recommend Moist Fury? And if so, to who? I laugh my ass off watching this movie. I still would not recommend it. It's just, (laughs) um, it's a, it's a, for me, this is, um, my best way of describing this movie is as if if, uh, Chris Siever tried to um, take a Russ Meyer film and then draw it entirely by hand in MS Paint. You know, like you know, like MS Paint memes have been have been a thing on the internet for a long time. That's this is the equivalent of that. This is taking a Russ Meyer film, the exploitative comedy of that, and reducing it to basically some scribbles in a GIF. It's, but there's there's some comedic value to it. Like I I enjoyed this more than I probably should have. Um, I still wouldn't recommend it. I don't know anybody except for one person that I can recommend this movie to. My wife came home as I was finishing the movie and she's like, what the fuck are you watching? I'm like, come over here. You have to see how terrible this is. And <laughs> I showed her the, 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 the first scene where um, Dubak throws the yeast 
at him and she's like i'm out i'm i'm, I'm done <laughs> um and that that's but that's says everything that i think i need to say but um at the same time the guy who plays the chef i hope that he got a career somewhere along the line i didn't look him up because he i for a for a split second i thought it was my brother like I was like, he looks very much like your brother. For listeners, it's Trevor like- Smith, by the way. Trevor Smith played the character Coach, um, and it is yeah. He's he's in uh, he's in Return to Blood Fart Lake from 2012 and uh, Filthy McNasty for Carnal Holocaust. Now, if yeah, it's probably been a while, Nate, since you've seen my brother, but he is still as the the, the little tiniest manic Italian you've ever met. He speaks exactly like him. He, he waves his hand whenever he's talking, when he's pissed off, which he's always pissed off, just like that. And I was like, oh my God, he's a fucking angry Guido. And the only thing that's missing is the fucking gold chain. It was, it was spot on. So my brother needs to watch this. And I have a friend who I'm going to recommend this to. And she's female because honestly, if I were to recommend this to any of my friends, they would be my female friends because they would probably get the jokes even better <laughs> than anyone else I know. But I, no, other than that, no. I sort of feel like, I, I feel like on some sort of surreal level that on a good day in the world that we live in, this is what it's like to be a woman is just to walk around. Every man around you is both stupid and like sexually ignorant and trying to fumble. And that's just the way that the world is. And everything else, just, just move along as you can. Um, I, I think, uh, I think, I'm going to recommend this movie to people. If you like the thought of a movie that is crazy and low budget, yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about trauma films before. Um, this is right up that alley. It's even it's a no budget versus a low budget, so it's down there. Um, if you've seen other SRS is sort of of this, the, the 2000s releases, give it a watch. You'll enjoy it. I'm going to say this. I've said this for other movies. This is a party movie for sure. You're having a bunch of people over. Put this movie on in the background. People will lose their mind, uh, especially those who have never. Most people haven't encountered, even in the cult. Most people have not really encountered the temporary no-budget film. Um, people will lose their mind. Oh, can anybody hear me? Can you hear me now? No. Yeah. So, uh, as I said troubles today folks but yeah i'd recommend this film to anyone especially uh for parties uh people will lose their mind if this is a party because most people even cult fans have not witnessed true contemporary 2000s no budget cinema masters of that like what like a jonestown party like a donner party what kind of party get your (laughs) kool-aid get your uh nutritional yeast um a party that involves a, a, a retinue of the cheapest liquors that you can pick up from the packy. Pop-Off and Captain Morgan. It, there um, you go. Yeah, this is just, just Pop-Off. Yeah, pretty much. Just, this, is, this, is a pop, this is a Pop-Off movie. This is very much. This is the, yeah, Pop-Off, not Mad Dog, because you don't want glass around the people. <laughs> um, fair, fair point. Yeah, no, this is very much like a freshman year of college. Like, you found this, and now you're going to make everybody watch it um, like Greg these uh that's how i saw a pokemon movie um yeah so that this is the thing um most people will not enjoy this film but there's a great large subject i find this movie funny and i do not find your budget film like super troopers funny you know 
Um, so I know Mandy likes Super Troopers. Sorry. Sorry about it. Um, so give it a shot. Uh, so that's it for today's episode of Cult and Classic Podcast. To play us out, as always, is the Chud with All About Evil. I want to say thank you, of course, to our guests, but also to all of the people who make the movies that we discuss and sometimes rag on. Uh, if you like what we're doing, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, especially or anywhere you get your podcasts, because that helps other people find us. It is the lifeblood of the podcast community. So have at it and have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Cult and Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me. What's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com, where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.